Welcome to Inspiration Rising. I'm your host, David Trotter, and we're here to inspire you to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. Well, if you have a kid that's pre-college or know someone who does, this episode is for you. Now, when the news of the Varsity Blues admission scandal broke, I saw the name Stephanie Mead in a couple of news articles as she shared her perspective on the issue, and I liked what she had to say. She seemed level-headed and authoritative, and so I reached out to her for an interview. She is a busy lady, and I finally had the opportunity to have this conversation and hopefully ask all the questions that were on your mind. Stephanie Mead is a certified educational planner and has been working with teenagers and their families and the college process for 30 years. In the past year, she was quoted in the Wall Street Journal and the Hollywood Reporter as well as a panelist on Fox Nation responding to questions raised by the Varsity Blues scandal. In this episode, you'll learn the role of a certified educational planner in your child's life, why job shadowing is a quick introduction to numerous career possibilities, why following curiosity may be more effective than following passion, what you need to know about the recent Varsity Blues college admission scandal, and the two things that determine whether your student has a positive experience in college. And that point is worth the entire interview in itself, let me tell you. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Stephanie Mead. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking some time to hang with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here talking with you. You are a certified educational planner. So I had never even heard of that term before until we connected. Um, What is that, and why would someone need a certified educational planner? I am really delighted that you want to talk about that, because that is something that I think we're trying to raise awareness around. Um, The field of independent educational consulting, which is the full name of what I do, and it's quite a mouthful, is actually a very young profession. There ha- it has not been around for very long. And if you look back, you know, 20 years ago, there were a tiny handful of us doing it. And the profession has absolutely exploded, which is wonderful in some ways. But the problem is that you have a quality control problem. And it is a field in which there is virtually no barrier to entry. So we have a lot of people who think either it sounds lucrative, which you know, they find out soon about that. Or maybe they had a great experience helping their own kids through the college process and they think it sounds fun and they jump in and they're maybe not as well trained as they could be and not prepared to handle the difficult situations and questions that inevitably arise. So CEP is a certification. I think it's, you know, most people know about accountants and that you're you probably should hire a CPS certified accountant because that means they have a certain level of training and expertise. Same is true for us. So certified educational planners have to pass a very comprehensive exam and have to keep up with pretty high benchmarks of ongoing professional development, attending conferences, touring campuses, and so forth. They have to be recertified every five years. So if you want to make sure that you're working with somebody who is an expert, you want to look for that CEP designation. The next best thing to do is look for people who belong to professional associations, such as the Independent Educational Consultants Association or Higher Education Consultants Association. Those also require some Barrier, there's some barrier to entry, but not nearly as high as for the CEP. 
Okay, great. So give us an overview of the services that you offer and how is that different than I see advertised, you know, SAT or ACT prep or essay coaches or, you know, all of these different things. My daughter, as I mentioned to you, she just uh, started her junior year um, actually at Vanguard University. And so she finished two years in community college, stayed at home and then, you know, went to Vanguard. And so, boy, we've seen all the, we've been marketed to, you know, a lot. So tell me how your services, what are your services and how are they different? At this point, all I am doing is college guidance. Uh, so I do not provide test prep. Uh, however, what I do is work with students starting in the ninth or 10th grade, usually to best position themselves for college admission and having a broad array of options. And that includes helping them think carefully about their curriculum choices. Are they pursuing their extracurricular interests in um, ways that are helping them really learn about themselves? Um, And are they on track with the standardized testing they need to do? I also do walk them through the application process from soup to nuts, including very close um, guidance on the essays. But there are a lot of sort of um, a la carte services out there. Test prep has become pretty normal. When I started doing this 100 years ago, test prep was kind of exotic. And now it's sort of a given. Pretty much everyone seems to have to do it. That can be a freestanding service that you obtain from a company that focuses on that or an individual. Some people in my profession will offer both Um, And that's one of the interesting things about the young profession is that it's being practiced in in a wide range of ways. But what I do is really just walk families and students through the college process, finding best fit, figuring out how to pay for it, and everything that's related to that. Mm -hmm. It is an overwhelming process. I mean, from obviously all the options, the paperwork, the finances, uh, you know, it is, it's just overwhelming. Yeah, and that's really unfortunate. I mean, I don't think it's good for our culture that it's so difficult that a lot of people think they need to hire somebody like me, but it has become incredibly complex. It's a lot like, you know, doing your own taxes or selling your own house. You know, there are things you could do, but you're pretty likely to miss opportunities and leave money on the table. Um, But again, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. For our society, that you know, access to higher education should be so complex, but that is the fact of where we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. I even think about you know, I live in Southern California, so do you, where a high percentage of individuals, perhaps the parents, are first generation and their native language is, is uh, Spanish. As I'm, we're going through all of this process, my wife and I with our daughter, I'm like, I don't see how a parent who English is not their first language could even possibly negotiate this process. It is so complex, as you mentioned. Yeah, there are so many obstacles. Almost everyone I know in my profession does pro bono work because we all lie awake at night worrying about the kids that don't have access to us. You know, when you have to make a living doing it, you necessarily are working with people who have a little bit of disposable income. Right. Um, But that leaves out so many people. Um, There are lots of amazing uh, community organizations and, you know, that's really proliferating. And Michelle Obama is sort of spearheading um, a big organization to help students have access to college. But yeah, as a culture, we have a lot of work to do there. Now, 
I want to ask you a tough question because, you know, you're in the business of helping students get into college and there's a pretty big conversation that's emerging that's asking, is college even necessary? You know, does it even matter? Because there are so many entrepreneurial ways to make a living and the cost of college is so high versus the return on that investment after, you know, students get out of college. Do you think college is for everyone? Should people go to college? Great question. And you're right. A tough one. Um, And the answer is with almost everything in my profession is it depends. Um, But, and I think there definitely are students who don't need college. And I have a couple in my practice where I'm asking the parents, you know, the kids are incredibly innovative and already have businesses off the ground. You know, are you sure this kid needs college or some that are just such great networkers and worker bees that, that they have done well just on their ways of relating with people. So I do think there are some people for whom it isn't necessary. However, if you look at the data, it's incredibly compelling. The case for college is incredibly compelling just in terms of, of income. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but you know, the, the, um, the additional income that people are likely to make over their lifetime, if they have a college education is pretty significant. I want to say it's something like a million dollars, but I really should check the, check the sources. Um, and, 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 and you bring up another really important point, which is the cost of college. And I think a lot of families don't understand that there are lots of ways to make college much, much cheaper. Very few colleges are actually charging the sticker price. There is a lot of money out there. You, yes, you do kind of have to know where it is. But I, I don't think it's necessary for anyone to pay $250,000 for a college education, nor do I think it's a good idea. But, but the overarching question is, the overarching answer to your question is that not everyone needs college, but I think those kids are, those young people may be fairly unusual because mm-hmm. the, the data, and there are lots and lots of studies, is still showing that that college over the lifetime does make a big difference. Mm-hmm. My kids, A's and B's through you know high school, and when they think about going to four more years of college, it's like the oh my gosh, this is just so much, you know. Um, and I break it down this way: I go, okay, here are your options. Um, I've tried to encourage you to be entrepreneurial. Do you want to start your own business and get going? I'll invest in it. I'll help you make it happen. I'll coach you. No, Dad, I don't want to do that. Okay, great. So you don't go to college. Would you like to work in fast food or um, service industry or in retail? Oh, no way. I don't want to do that. Okay, great. Um, do you want to go to a technical school? Do you want to be a nurse? Do you want to be a welder? Do you want to be you know, any of those things? No, that doesn't sound fun. Okay, you've got one option and it's called college then. And that means it's four years of exploring what you want to do, you know, who you are, developing relationships and so forth. I just break it down that easy. Like those are your options or be, or be homeless. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? I think you kind of got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're choosing college. <laughs> well, I just want to tag on to that. You know, when you said, oh, it's four more years of school. One of the things that's usually an improvement over high school is students have much more latitude to study what interests them right? and to explore things they've never heard of. It's not just those five core solid subjects they've been stuck with in high school. So even kids who are not just loving reading in school and every academic task often find college a lot more fun than high school. Right, right. So... Let's talk about how hard it is to get into college. 
because, you know, boy, it feels like uh, I had a friend the other day. Um, he's actually a pastor. He works with people that are in challenge situations that are getting out of drug addiction. And he said, Dave, I don't even know how to coach somebody on getting into college. You know what I mean? Like for some people, it can, if their parents didn't go to college, if they didn't have that expectation, it can feel so overwhelming. Like I don't even know where to begin. So how hard is it to go to a four-year college? I am so glad you asked that because the answer is it's pretty easy. So I think the way college is discussed in the media and you know, that's been somewhat brought into sharp focus by, you know, the events of the last year um, leaves the impression that it's just harder and harder and harder to get into college, that there are more kids fighting over fewer spots and that it's horrible and dog eat dog. And you have to be, you know, an Olympic medal winner and a piano competition winner to even have a shot. So nothing could be further from the truth. It turns out that 80% of the four-year colleges in this country, of which we have almost 3,000, that's the first thing. We have almost 3,000 colleges in this country. We are so fortunate. We have so many options. We have so much choice. And that doesn't even include the community colleges. Just four-year colleges. Yeah. Yeah, And that's a whole other wonderful, viable option. But just just four-year colleges. Of those almost 3,000, 80% accept more than 50% of their applicants. Okay. 80% of the colleges are accepting more than half the students who apply. You got a lot of opportunity. Yes. And so what the, the media myth that this is a scarce resource available to only a few is exactly that a myth. We, we are, again, we just have such abundance in terms of higher education opportunities in this country. So if you take your focus off of you know, rankings like the U.S. News and World Report, which has very little bearing on the quality of the undergraduate experience, focusing on how many students schools reject as a proxy for quality, which it most certainly is not, and really thinking about who you are and what kind of learning environment you want to be in, what kind of budget is appropriate for your family, and start to approach the process from from who you are and what you need, you will be delighted to find the abundance of options available. Mm -hmm. So if a high school student, i.e. my daughter, doesn't have like a solid direction in life for a major, like, oh my gosh, I'm so passionate about X, Y, or Z. How can they prepare for college? You know what I mean? How can they, and, and even make that transition into a college? It feels overwhelming to go, I don't even know what college to look at because I'm not passionate about a certain subject. Right. Great. First of all, I think passion is a pretty big word, especially for 17 year olds, you know, and I think there's a tremendous burden on these kids. I I haven't found my passion. I haven't found my passion. And I think a different word might be more helpful. And that is maybe something like, what are you curious about? Uh What kinds of ways of thinking are more fun for you. You know, we all have brain wiring that gives us certain cognitive preferences. And maybe I might like thinking more about concepts that involve numbers and you might like thinking more about concepts that involve words. So really focusing on that, what kinds of ways of thinking are interesting to you and what are you curious about? So that I think takes the burden off of finding that singular passion. As you know, as a person who I believe has reinvented yourself many times and who supports people who reinvent themselves, especially now 
most of us have many, many things that we do over a lifetime and, and those things evolve. One interest leads to another, one opportunity, one curiosity leads to another. And we need to allow our young people that same latitude. Now, I get that that sounds scary. Oh, just go figure it out. But a couple things, to, to a couple of concrete ideas. One is if you really have no idea, your student has no direction whatsoever, that will inform your college search in that you should be looking for schools who specialize in supporting kids in exploring. There are lots of colleges that have freshman year programs that are designed for that, where they take personality tests and career interest batteries, and they advise them on taking different classes that help them try things. So a lot of that is baked into the process. So you really don't need to have a focus or a career focus to start college. But another more practical thing you can do starting in high school is I am a big fan of job shadows. Internships are hard to get, but job shadows are easy to get. And what I mean by that is to have your student spend a day, an afternoon, a week, whatever it might be, following around somebody who has a job that they're curious about. So I always say to the students, what do your friends' parents do? What do your parents' friends do? Can you follow any of them around? I have one student who did six or seven in the last year, and she didn't even care what the people did. She did, you know, she shadowed a jewelry maker, um, a television show host, a finance person. And she started to see common threads that she really liked in all of those businesses, the marketing and the publicity. And so it started to help her sort out that at least as she starts her college journey, she's probably going to start in communications. So that's free it's not a big time commitment. Um, if there's an opportunity to do uh, short summer programs that are available through college campuses, some of them are expensive, some of them are inexpensive, sometimes just a week or two going in depth in an academic area can tell a student whether or not she wants to focus in that area. Um, but they shouldn't just be sitting in their rooms on social media trying to pick a career. They only are going to learn about what is meaningful to them by immersing themselves and doing some of these things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you said in that freshman program is a personality test. How much do you think a student's personality plays into the subject and ultimately a career that they would choose? I definitely think it's a factor. I also really focus in my practice on learning style. You know, how do kids like to learn? Is the student going to learn well in a large lecture setting? Some students do really well in that setting. Or if there's a lot of independent work and reading to do. Or is the student better suited to smaller classes that are discussion-based? Or learning that is hands-on? Um, I think that, as much as personality, can, can really start to direct a student toward the right kind of educational path. If you enjoy the Inspiration Rising podcast, will you consider leaving a rating and review on the app wherever you listen to the show? When you leave a review, it actually helps more people find out about the inspiring content we offer for free every week. For instance, here's a review by PKRN from PA. I assume that means Pennsylvania. They write, David's podcasts are all very inspirational, and I really appreciate this platform. I listen to all of his podcasts in the morning while getting ready for my day. There is truly content in every one of them that touches my heart and speaks to something that I'm going through in my life's journey. 
I'm grateful for his gift of reaching out to others. I always say that if we can make a difference in our lives, then we are living them right. David is making a difference and his uplifting messages and personality help me to keep a better mindset. Thank you. Aw, that's so nice. Like, that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, right? It is a lot of work to produce the podcast and... I'm doing it for you because I want to help you live an inspired life. So one of the ways that you can give a small thank you is by leaving a rating and review on the app wherever you listen to the show. All right, let's jump back into my conversation with Stephanie Mead. Let's talk about community colleges. When I was growing up, that was seen, I'm 46, so you know, that was a long time ago. Those were seen as kind of... Uh, Mm, a little lowly, you know, kind of at least, well, I grew up in Kentucky. And so they were probably less maybe pronounced or, you know, developed. And yet now they seem to be so large of an option. Who, what kind of student would be best suited to attend a community college before, you know, transferring to a four-year school? Great. You probably partially have that perception because we're in California, where we have an incredibly robust community college system. It's really fantastic. Is it different? Is it larger than most states? Yes. Yes. I mean, people too. Um, But... It, the, how the, the the availability and quality of community college is going to vary state to state because they're usually public institutions, so state funding and okay. use to the state is going to be a factor. But I think community college can be a great option for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's cheap, and you can have two very very inexpensive years. Um, the student can get their general education requirements out of the way, maybe do some of that exploration that we talked about, and then only pay two years at a, a two years worth of tuition at a four-year institution. Um, some kids just really need a little bit more time at home. Some kids can use a little bit more academic maturity, and it's hard for parents to justify spending money for a student to do a lot of partying and get a lot of C's and D's. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be a candidate. Um, one of the things that you have to be a little careful, at least in California, is some of our community colleges are very impacted and some of the programs are overflowing. Let's take some self skills on the part of the student to be able to navigate through, make sure they're fulfilling the requirements in order to be able to transfer and that kind of thing. But I, I think it's a good option for a lot of people, whether it's for costs, maturity, being close to home, exploration. It can work for a lot of, a lot of students. I'm also hearing, and I, the, the word for this has escaped my mind at the moment, but basically uh, where students in high school can also be simultaneously enrolled in a class in college. And it counts for both their high school program and college. And some students are almost graduating high school with an AA. Yeah. That's called dual enrollment usually. Okay. Um, and again, it varies state to state and institution to institution because some colleges are now saying classes can only count for one. So that really um, is going to depend on the, the the institution the student matriculates to in terms of how much of those how much of those credits are going to be counted towards a college degree. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's still a good option because it's giving kids access to more advanced curriculum, exploration, learning the skills necessary to navigate in a college situation. So I think there's a lot to be gained from that, but just it is case by case in terms of how those credits will be handled by the receiving institution. Mm-hmm. So you work with students even as young as 
eighth grade, I believe, eighth, ninth grade? I will occasionally meet with eighth graders once, and that is pretty much for one reason, and that is to do a little bit of work on planning the courses that they will take in high school. That's pretty much the main thing we're doing there, because if someone comes to me in junior year and has made some really significant errors in terms of the courses they've taken. Such as, give me an example. What uh, what are some just foreign language. Not taking a foreign language. But most high schools would require that, don't they? There's a, they're all over the map. There's some high schools in my area that don't require it at all or require only one year, uh, which is surprising because that doesn't align with the University of California minimum requirements. So that not necessarily, um, you know, colleges generally want to see students taking the five core academic subjects for as long as possible, preferably all four years. And that's math, science, English, social science, and foreign language. And sometimes students aren't doing that. So if they come to me in junior year and haven't taken foreign language or haven't taken much social science, it's going to really limit their options in terms of the colleges they're going to be eligible for. So if I meet with them in eighth grade, that's pretty much what it's for. Or just because there's a lot of anxiety in the family and they want to get some questions answered. Um, And and even with ninth and 10th graders, I only see them once or twice a year. And same thing, keeping on track with extracurricular. Sometimes they want some guidance in how they should spend their summer, you know, that sort of thing. We don't really start the meat of the college process until about the middle of the junior year. So I like to say I, I, the only reason I meet with the younger kids is just to keep them out of trouble. Sure, sure. Take that foreign language. Got to get it yes, done. Exactly. Yep. So I'm now in college, Right how do I make the most of my college experience in order to transition into this thing we now call adulting? (laughs) Right. Great verb, isn't it? Um, So there is a really interesting study that was done about five years ago by Gallup and uh, Purdue University. And they looked at, it was a huge study. I think they looked at 30 or 40,000 college graduates where they went to college, and then they looked at success in life, not just ROI, not just return on investment, but also job satisfaction, job, job satisfaction, workplace engagement, and basically happiness, you know, how happy were they in their personal life. So really um, broad in its scope of thinking about success and happiness, and then tied it back to qualities of their undergraduate experience. So One thing I want to add, which is a little bit on the side to the question you asked, is that one of the things that they found is that the selectivity of the institution, in other words, how hard it was to get in, how high the rejection rate was, had zero correlation on these outcomes. So this idea that is pervasive in our culture that you need to go to the most high rejection rate school you can, and therefore that guarantees success in life, is not borne out by the data even a little bit. Mm. Even on a financial level? Even on a financial level. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell has done some interesting writing on this, but it, it, that really turns out to be a myth. And I'll tell you, it's a tough one. I can tell that to parents and then they'll turn around and say, yeah, but we need to pay attention to the pedigree of the institution, right? So, no, we do not. That turns out to have zero correlation to income and future success and happiness. So to answer your question, they were able to identify one thing 
that seemed to have the, the most positive outcome. And that was if a student had developed a relationship with at least one faculty member. Hmm. So some, one faculty member who cared about them. So if you are in college, get to know your professors. And it doesn't just mean your advisor. Go to office hours. All professors hold office hours. Any faculty member is a potential advisor. It doesn't even have to be someone you're taking a class with. Get to know your faculty. Take advantage of that. And that's one of the reasons I often encourage students to focus on colleges that are focused on undergraduates, because that tends to mean that the faculty working there like undergraduates and want to mentor them. That was number one. Number two was if the students had engaged in a project that it lasted more than one semester. So whether that was a research project, an extracurricular activity, could even be Greek life, uh, an internship, anything like that that lasted more than one semester. So get involved, whether it's research with a professor, whether it's an internship, whether it's just anything on campus that you're interested in. Those two things, which both have a common theme, which is engagement, seemed to be the keys really to success. So if you are in college, take advantage of every opportunity, meet with those professors, get involved, make a contribution. Um, And then another piece is that internships and summer jobs are increasingly important to employers. And I find that so many students do not take advantage of the, the career resources that are available on campuses. Those are becoming more and more robust, have, you know, amazing databases of alumni offering internships and summer opportunities. And that's another thing students should really be doing is is engaging with the career services on their campus. Amazing. So Gallup, this was a Gallup uh, study. Yeah, with Purdue. With Purdue, Mm -hmm. 30 to 40,000 students. Um, Graduates. Graduates, yeah. Uh, interesting. So they connected with one professor or someone, and then a, a more than one year of a project. Both more of those things, semester. more than one semester. Yeah. Okay. So not not tough things to do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's really fascinating and really uh, kind of counterintuitive. Hmm. Yeah. As I think about my own experience, you know, I had both of those things, and you, you know, yeah, yeah, and it definitely. Um, felt enriching. So, and often when I tell that to parents and they reflect back on their own experience, they do remember that one professor in that one project. So, it, I think it's been true for a long time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so everybody who's listening has heard about the college admissions bribery scandal. We've even, at the time of this recording, had some people heading off to prison for a few months, um, and. Give can you just give us an overview of what happened? Just maybe take us back and go, okay, what did these people do and why why is that such a, a big deal? Great, because I think it's both a big deal and not a big deal. Um, I actually put up a blog post shortly after it happened, which was basically here's when it's not a big deal. But the overview is this: there was one individual named Rick Singer who was I will say posing as an educational consultant who is actually a criminal. 
Uh, and he, he had two avenues that he used. One was that he had bought off a group of people who would enable students to cheat on their standardized exams in it with a variety of, of uh, methods. But that was one thing. It was cheating on standardized exams, SAT and ACT. And the other thing he was doing was he had a stable of corrupt athletic coaches who would in return for bribes, designate a student as a high priority athletic recruit. That's it. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. So it's actually pretty simple. And I, one of the things that I find it um, difficult is that it's been called an admissions scandal and not a single admissions person at any level has been accused or even suspected of any wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. So that's what a, where it gets to a big deal, not a big deal, because I think a lot of people felt, oh my gosh, this is the tip of the iceberg. The whole system is broken. It's completely corrupt. It doesn't work. There's another system we didn't know about. And that's not really accurate. We have to remember that as high profile as this case has been and as high profile as some of the individuals are, this is a tiny number of people. Tiny mm -hmm. and a tiny number of institutions, and at not one of those institutions did the admissions office have a clue. In fact, I consider the admissions offices to have been victims mm -hmm. because admissions officers have to rely on their colleagues. You know, is this student a really great soccer player or a musician or a filmmaker so that we should consider that in our admissions decisions? They have to rely on people who understand those things. And those people were corrupt. So that's what happened. Um, but I do want people to know that that was not normal. It is not widespread. It is not how things work. The vast majority of admissions officers love kids, think education is really important, and work unbelievably long hours fighting to advocate for students and find the right fit for them. And that is still the case. Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't, I, I know that some students were discouraged thinking, oh my gosh, all my hard work is meaningless because some rich kid is buying my spot. Not really. I mean, this is really a tiny, tiny mm -hmm. um, number of individuals in campuses. However, I do like that it has brought up some important points of conversation. I think, you know, there, there's no question that college admission is no more fair than anything else in our culture. You know, so much of uh, what you end up being able to achieve in terms of college admission has to do with where you were born and who your parents are. Mm -hmm. So it, all the inequities that are part of our culture are baked into admission. So I'm not saying it's perfectly fair and we have lots of work to do. And I think some really good conversations have been generated on that topic um, mm -hmm. as, the as the result of the scandal. But the other thing I think it, it, it invites conversation on, which we've touched on already today, is that these parents and this is not even getting into like what kind of parenting we're talking about here, but that these parents were, I think the word is obsessed right. with one or two specific high rejection rate schools. And we now know that that has nothing to do with long-term successful outcomes. So I think it's a good opportunity for us to stop and look at that value and, and question it. Mm -hmm. But it does increase the size of my ego if my kid gets into that school. 
And you know, <laughs> it was just, you're right. I was just reading, and I don't. It, it was one of the uh, fathers who was sentenced recently, and I don't know if it was the judge or the prosecutor who said this, but I read that the the person was trying to defend himself by saying, "But I just did it because I wanted the best for my child." And the response was, "No." That's not why you did it. You know, we're not talking about a quality education here. We're talking about an institution you perceive as exclusive. Therefore, it was really about your status. Sure. You know, when I saw the amount of money that they were spending to do this, I kept thinking to myself, couldn't they have just given a donation to the school and the school would have seen favorably upon their child? Wouldn't, I mean, I know that's not legal. I know it's not like the thing, no. but it just seems like that would be an easier way around this. Actually, thank you for asking that, because I think that's an, a, something that has gotten confused in the public's mind as a result of this scandal. We're talking about two completely different ideas. The idea that a family makes a donation hoping that it enhances their child's you know, opportunities. Um, that is legal. Um, it is legal. Okay. That is completely legal. However, a couple things to know. One is that in most cases, it doesn't work. There is no guarantee that a large donation is going to result in admission of the student, which is mm-hmm. one of the reasons these families use this more surefire method. And mm-hmm. I have worked with families who have gotten really worked up about a particular institution, had the means to make contributions and fly across the country and have dinner with the, the president. And the kids still didn't get in, to which I said, yay, (laughs) because there's integrity in the system. Sure. You know, at least at least some. Um, So that's one thing is that there is no guarantee. Secondly, we may not like it. There, there, it's, it's certainly true that a student who's maybe just on the borderline of being admissible might get the tip in if there's a sizable amount of money on the line. So we may not like that. And we may consider it distasteful. However, if the family is giving half a million dollars to build a library on that campus, every single person on that campus benefits, including the kids who are there on full scholarship, the underpaid faculty, et cetera. And I would argue that there is value of a public good that comes from that system. Again, it's, it's fraught issues with it, but it's, it's a very big distinction. So these families wanted a guarantee and had the lightest bit of interest in doing service to the community of that campus. Mm-hmm. Oh, so hard. Stephanie, you are a wealth of information. I wish we would have hired you in this process. Oh my goodness. You're incredible. And I want to make sure that people check out your website. It's collegiateedge.com. And particularly the resources link, I found to be very rich with with resources. Um, and we'll link to that in our show notes. If you're listening, you can just swipe up on your phone and click it now. It's collegiateedge.com slash resources. Um, but also we'll have it in the show notes on our website. So Stephanie, thank you. You're just a breath of fresh air. You're full of positivity. You've got enthusiasm. I feel like you just love students around the world. You just want them to succeed. I love this. I want them to succeed and they can do it. We have such opportunity and I want people to know that. That's great. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. This has been a blast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephanie and I encourage you to check out the resources section on her website 
at www.collegiateedge.com. That's collegiateedge.com. Or you can find all her links in the show notes at our website, insporising.com. Now, if you found this interview helpful or think it would be educational for a friend, be sure to share it with them. Take a screenshot on your phone and text it right to them. Tell them to listen to the Inspiration Rising podcast on the Apple or Google podcast app. All right, until next time, have a wonderful week.